Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the Union Naval. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome, everyone, to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today, and I'm going to trust the Republicans to stay out of our bedrooms for a couple of minutes here because I want to yell at the Democrats for being in our wallets, and I can only do one thing at a time. So, Republicans, my eyes are off you. Stay out of the bedrooms. Here we are with another debt ceiling catastrophe upon us. And this is such an old retreaded thing. It happens every year without fail. And when you hear about a debt ceiling crisis, when you see overheated news reports that we're going to default on our debt, that everything's going to die unless the the damn Republicans let the Democrats spend more money, it's like uh, finding out that there's another Friday the 13th movie. What do you want to go see the new Friday the 13th movie? What's it about? A guy in a hockey mask chases kids around with a machete. Debt ceiling is exactly like that. The guy in the hockey mask just chases America around with a machete and demands more spending. Spending and debt without limit, beyond reason, without measure, world without end. Amen. This has been a farce for a long time. This years now, many, many years now, that the debt ceiling drama always goes the same way. Nobody makes a logical budget. Nobody in Washington even thinks about budgeting anywhere near the amount of money that they actually get from taxes. That is... That is Bush-Clinton-era thinking. They don't do that anymore. That's all the way back to the 1990s when we had budgets that sort of vaguely resembled federal income. And even back then, the, the Washington big spenders, they wanted more spending. They wanted more money. They wanted to raise taxes. And they realized that uh, people don't like paying a lot of taxes. You can only pressure the American people into coughing up so much of their hard-earned money before they start asking tough questions about what you're doing with it. And our government wastes stupid stupendous and inconceivable amounts of money on ridiculous nonsense and dangerous nonsense and counterproductive programs and so on that very few of us would actually agree with. So a long time ago, the the big spenders started saying, eh, let's not even talk about taxes anymore. Let's just spend the money. It'll be free money from out of midair. We'll have to borrow it. And we have to go deeper and deeper into debt. We have to have giant deficits because there's always an emergency. There's always a crisis. Uh, you know, the pandemic, of course, was the big crisis a couple of years ago that justified unimaginable levels of spending. If, if spending at this point, if U.S. federal spending, if you put the debt, the national debt in pennies, Superman couldn't lift it. I mean, it's, it's an incomprehensible amount of money. And they said, let's go even further into debt. We have to because we have to shut the country down and have all these emergency programs for the pandemic. So we added trillions more on top of a pile that was already trillions high. It's up to $32 trillion uh, now, give or take a nickel, which is more 
debt than the entire world could could pay off if it wanted to. And that's not even counting all the entitlements. That's the national debt. You start throwing all the commitments in there and your your debt hawks will tell you the real figure is more like a hundred trillion. But the official national debt is is inconceivable even in its minimal configuration. Looking at it in the sternest possible way, you're still talking about an amount of money that is breathtaking in scope. So every time we get to the debt ceiling crisis, we come to a point where they tell us the government is going to default on its debts. And that means everything is going to come crashing down. It's going to be like Ghostbusters, cats and dogs living together. It's the end of the world if they don't raise the debt ceiling right this very second. And in this case, as the latest debt ceiling showdown approached, the Republicans under House Speaker Kevin McCarthy did something the White House was not expecting. They actually passed a bill to raise the debt limit. That wasn't supposed to happen. They weren't supposed to be able to do that, but they did. They got the votes together and they passed a bill that says, okay, we'll raise the debt limit by a certain amount. And it's a whole lot of money, but in exchange, the government's going to have to cut spending by this amount. And they specified an amount of spending that would have to be cut in order to obtain the new debt limit. It was actually kind of a compromise-ish between the big spenders and people that have some vestigial sense of fiscal responsibility. Well, that wasn't supposed to happen. So on Monday, the White House runs out and they send out their, their national spokesman, their, their White House press officer, Karine Jean-Pierre, and she says, that's it. We're not going to accept this. We're not going to negotiate. This bill is dead, null and void. We'll never bargain. We'll never cut a penny of spending. They're explicitly telling you, in case you're not getting this, that they are going to rob you blind in the Democratic Party. They will not stop sucking money out of your wallet, your family, ever until they cease to exist. As far as they're concerned, the Democratic Party has an unlimited blank check to spend money, and they will not accept even the slightest idea, slightest hint that there could be any restraint on their spending power. Cut any any money from the budget? Well, that's irresponsible. You can't, you can't do that. You can't reduce spending. That That's crazy. You see, the federal leviathan, this big monster coiled on the Potomac, is a most unusual beast. This is a, a fantasy creature of mythology, this leviathan. And one of the weird things about it is that it wears its muscle outside of its fat to protect its layers of flap. Now, most animals, you look at a grizzly bear, they've got all kinds of fat hanging outside of their muscles, protects their muscles. Not so with the Leviathan. The Leviathan wears its muscles on the outside. So when you say, let's cut spending a little bit in order to keep the government running, we'll raise the debt ceiling, but we demand a modest spending cut, then the Leviathan and its defenders say, Okay, we'll just fire all the teachers. How about that? We'll fire all the cops. We'll fire all the doctors. They always start screaming that they're going to slash everything that people care about, everything that people depend on, everything that most people consider a duty of the government, something they should be doing. Never, ever, ever do they entertain the thought of cutting a nickel from vast, titanic, unimaginable administrative overhead and useful, wasteful, corrupt government programs and giveaways and all the slush funds that the government has piled up all over the country to finance political activities. No, 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 no. That stuff never gets cut. You want a penny of spending cuts? We're going to pull the trigger on some teachers. How about that? That's what's going to happen if you make the government smaller. In this case, the uh, Biden administration 
administration is howling that if they're forced to cut a nickel of government spending, that's it for the Department of Veterans Affairs. They said, we're going to have to cut all the veterans money and we're going to have to leave them all. All the veterans will be out there. They'll all die because they won't get medical care because the mean evil Republicans made us cut a nickel of spending in order to get this elevated debt ceiling. This is just obscene. It's grotesque. And we keep doing it over and over and over again in this sham display of nominal fiscal accountability. And part of the problem is that the people that want to be fiscally responsible never really stick to their guns. They don't fight this fight all the way to the end and get their spending cuts. That never actually happens. And that's not entirely their fault because when they try, when you see people that are fiscally responsible looking around the landscape and saying, uh, I don't think we can keep spending a trillion and change we don't have every year for infinity. This is going to end at some point and it's going to be ugly. So we need to do something right now. Well, when they do that, they get torn to pieces. And as you've seen from this this unfolding debt drama before us, the big spenders, the defenders of the government Leviathan, they are not shy about taking hostages to get the money they want. They, they tell you that if they're forced to give up anything at all, if you don't give them the money they demand, well, they'll kill this and they'll kill that and they'll kill you and they'll kill your family. Everything's going to go to hell because the last thing they would ever dream of doing is cutting their pet programs and their slush funds and their corrupt giveaways and their big high rolling programs. They'd never cut any money from teaching diversity education and critical race theory and transsexual indoctrinations in schools. No, no, no. That stuff never gets cut. What's going to get cut is the, your kindergarten teacher. That's who's going to get cut if you force the government to give up a nickel of money. It's just crazy. We've been doing this dance forever. It goes back for years. The last time anybody was really serious about all this, I, I would say, was during the late Obama administration. We had this big budget battle in a 2011, I think it was, and you actually had some people on the other side digging in their heels and warning of catastrophe. Oh God, if only we'd listen to them, <laughs> but, but we didn't. They, they warned that there was fiscal catastrophe coming, and they proposed all sorts of reforms that would reduce government spending and, and slow down the deficit monster, and, and they lost. They got rolled. We ended up with a bargain that didn't really restrain spending all that much, and then most of the restraints on spending were abandoned over the ensuing years once nobody was paying attention anymore which is also what usually happens. The the big game the government plays is that they always get their money up front. They get their debt, they get their spending, they get their tax increases. And the promises they make to be more responsible and take better care of the money, that's supposed to happen 10 years from now and it never actually does. It's, it's, just, it's another con game that gets played forever. And the problem here is that we are rapidly approaching territory where this is all going to collapse. I mean, this game cannot continue for very much longer. There are lots of different people People that will play with the numbers and project this or that fiscal doomsday horizon. But one of the problems that we're having right now that, that's illustrated by this debt ceiling battle is that so much of our government spending, meaning so much of your tax money, is spent on simply servicing the inconceivable debt the government has already accumulated. And that money has to be paid. If they don't pay the debt service, then we default and all sorts of horrible things happen. We lose our credit rating as a country, and that makes it harder to get favorable terms to finance the debt in the future. So that's your, your fiscal snowball apocalypse. So we're being held hostage with the debt that our own government has created against us. It's obscene. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Engelheim. 
Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Global Fibronear program. To learn more about Fibronear and eligibility requirements, visit fibronear-ipf.longboat.com and fibronear-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to skill 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart and don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at PVA.org. 
back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, I went off on a bit of a tear about government spending in our opener of the hour, but there's other ways that the government gets money out of you besides taxes and besides spending. Another way that it imposes titanic costs on the private sector in America is through regulatory overreach, crazy regulations often promulgated with no discernible congressional approval that end up costing billions of dollars and people are expected to just, you know, shut up and pay for it. And there is some pushback against one of these overweening regulations reaching the Supreme Court. It is a case brought by New Jersey fishermen against a regulation, a federal regulation from the Biden administration that would force them to pay enormous monitoring fees for their industry. And the regulation was never approved by Congress as it should have been. Here with us to talk about it is Ryan Mulvey, counsel at Cause of Action Institute, who is involved in the case. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. This is such an interesting case because this is the kind of spending, the kind of drag on the economy that the government has that people don't really appreciate all the time. These regulations are often madcap. They're come up with by individual bureaucrats or pressure groups, and Congress is never involved. Nobody ever really debates it. And the next thing you know, some industry like fishermen is expected to shell out crazy amounts of money for a rule that was never properly debated. Yeah, that's right. This is not just an interesting case, but it's really an infuriating example of how regulatory overreach in the administrative state imposes costs and messes with really the constitutional system that the founders created. Um, uh, Let me give you some some background so your readers can appreciate just how egregious the overreach here was. So our our clients, these uh, they're multi-generational small businesses in southern New Jersey. They fish for herring. Um, they're already subject to a lot of regulation. Uh, Congress has approved for the agency to uh, tell the fishermen to have to carry monitors on their boats, but the agency has to pay for it, and that's what Congress expected. Well, in this instance with Herring, the agency ran out of money, and they wanted still more monitors to be put on the boats. So what they decided to do was to pass a regulation that just ordered the fishermen to enter into contracts with independent third-party businesses to provide for these monitoring services. The agency did this by fiat, and it knew, it estimated the cost at $700 per day. And remember, fishermen don't always catch fish. You know, it's like hunting. You go out, you may not get lucky. But $700 a day, they estimated that it was going to reduce revenue by 20% and endanger a large percentage of the fleet's economic viability. And they did all of this despite over 90% of the regulated industry trying to push back. And the only reason that they've been successful so far was uh, because of a doctrine called Chevron deference, uh, by which the courts let aid defer to agencies' understanding of the law and let them get away with this sort of overreach. Luckily, yesterday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear this case. And, you know, we're hopeful that uh, we'll see some pushback on, on the status quo. And when you say monitors, are these electronic devices or are they people like federal regulators are actually on the boats? No, these are actual human beings that, uh, you know, the fishermen, especially our companies, our clients, these boats, you know, they fit maybe five to eight guys, fishermen, uh, they have to give up one of those berths, one of the bunks on the boat, 
for a, a human person to come on and literally do nothing but watch them do their job and watch them catch fish. And now not only do they have to do that, they have to pay the salary of the guy who's taken up the space on the boat. Well, that that was my next question. So that if it's a person, it must be eating up some space on a boat that doesn't have a lot of open space. So not only are they paying for the monitor, but they're also giving up some of their potential income just to have them, which makes the cost even higher than it looks like it is on paper. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Which is a lot to ask of a small business. And I know this is a subject that people don't want to dig into if they're not business owners, because they assume that every business is licensed to print money. But a lot of business operations, especially a family fishing operation, running on a very tight profit margin and can't just absorb costs like this. And when you say it's going to add 20% to their cost, what I hear is it's going to add 20% to the cost of the product they pass along to customers, which people aren't going to like paying. It's going to be another invisible tax that we all get stuck with. Yeah, if any of your listeners are familiar, there was the movie that won the Academy Award last year, Coda, um, is about fishermen in New England. They're not herring fishermen, but same uh, different fishery, same exact regulatory requirement that the government imposed there a few years before uh, herring fishery. And that movie is very accurate in its depiction of the, the burden and the economic impact where you have mom and pop fishing vessels, you know, they own their own vessel, they're the ones out there fishing, and they go under. They suffer tremendous economic impact, devastating economic impact from these types of regulations. And, you know, it's just so offensive that when a statute, when Congress hasn't given any authorization, and the agency has run out of the money, instead of going back to Congress and asking for more, they decide, well, you know what, we're just going to force the American people to have to pay for this on their own. I mean, that's that's a really a, a great offense to the system of government that the founders uh, had designed for us. But that's also part and parcel of the debt ceiling battle that I was talking about at the beginning of the show, that all spending has become utterly divorced from reality, from income, and from even the purpose of that spending. And here you have an example of an agency that said, oh, we didn't get enough money to do what we want, so we're going to do it anyway and make you pay for it. And I'm sure there's other agencies that do that. This cannot be the only example of this. So it sounds like winning at the Supreme Court by these fishermen could be a victory for everyone in pushing back against this kind of federal overreach. Yeah, so uh, the, since the Supreme Court has decided, decided to hear this case, and if your listeners are interested, I would uh, ask them to visit causeofaction.org. We have a great video about our clients and about this case, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. You know, with the court revisiting the concept of deference and uh, that's given to the administ- administrative state, it's going to have a tremendous impact if they rule for the fishermen here and either overturn or limit Chevron deference. Um, it's going to have a tremendous impact on the future of the regulatory state, and it's very much going to help restore the systems of checks and balances and separation of powers that the Constitution is supposed to protect. You know, you mentioned uh, Congress and and spending and uh, the debt ceiling. You know, if one of the the most important powers that Congress has is the power of the purse, and for an agency, when Congress has said, we're not going to pay for this for an agency decide to decide on its own to circumvent Congress uh, and to just force citizens to pay for these desired programs that the executive branch wants to impose is just so it's so offensive. And we really need a system where Congress legislates the the president and the executive branch implements and the courts tell us what the law is. That's what the founders 
envisioned, and that's what we need. And the administrative state and the concept of deference, where uh, where Congress has not spoken or has spoken ambiguously, this, this idea that the courts have come up with of just letting the agency get away with it as long as it has a, quote, reasonable interpretation of the law is just so misguided. And we're really optimistic that now we have the chance to uh, to push back and to get back to the way things are supposed to be in our republic. A lot of critics of this kind of regulatory overreach say we're paying the price for Congress abandoning its powers for years and just handing power over to the administrative state because it didn't want to do its job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you do that long enough and you get situations like this where not only do you have costs being imposed by regulatory fiat, but the agency is explicitly doing it because it said we didn't have the money. We're going to do it anyway. That's not the way this is supposed to work. Ryan Mulvey, counsel at Cause of Action Institute. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of the Alan Nathan Show. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day and on random occasions throughout the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. Spring is here, and there's no better time to try something new. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar and enjoy real Coke taste and zero sugar. Now available at participating Burger King restaurants. Try Coke Zero Sugar with your favorite food from Burger King. Satisfy your hunger and enjoy Coke Zero Sugar with a piping hot breakfast sandwich, like a sausage, egg, and cheese croissant sandwich. Sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant makes for a delicious breakfast to start your morning right. And don't forget the crispy hash browns. Or if the flame-grilled Whopper sandwich, BK Royal crispy chicken sandwich, or chicken fries are your fave, you are in luck. All Burger King menu items pair perfectly with an ice-cold Coke Zero Sugar. It's the perfect no-sugar sparkling beverage that goes great with everything. Take a taste of Coke Zero Sugar to enjoy spring your way at Burger King, where you rule. At participating U.S. Burger King restaurants. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Climb puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! 
What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor at Breitbart News. While China's tensions with the United States are continuing to grow in a variety of economic and strategic ways, and the Biden administration is making some unusual moves in, in response to this, a little while ago, the uh, Pentagon uh, was talking about how transitioning to electric vehicles was supposedly going to make us energy independent. And when I heard them say that, I thought, well, where do they think the electric batteries come from? from China. <laughs> the guys you're supposed to be getting ready to go to war with completely control the electric vehicle industry, the electric battery industry, the rare earths needed to make uh, electric vehicles and solar panels. China is the gargantuan, unbreakable monopoly controller of all of that stuff. So you're, you're not being independent by going to electric vehicles. And as it happens, uh, just the other day, the Interior Secretary, Deb Holland, was doing some congressional testimony, and uh, Josh Hawley decided to ask her that exact question after do, do you know that all this electric vehicle stuff comes from china and she didn't know she's she was flummoxed i i i didn't know china no i didn't know china controls it is that possible is the Biden administration so comprehensively incompetent that they don't even know 
that China is where all this electric stuff comes from, that they're mortgaging our future to, it, it just boggles the mind. We are not seriously competing. We don't have serious people in charge of the battle for economic and strategic dominance in the 21st century against China. Here with us to talk about this is Bobby Charles, spokesperson for AMAC and a frequent commenter on Fox Television, Radio, and in print. Thanks for joining us on the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Always a pleasure, and I think you've got a, uh, a great topic for the day. My, my jaw is on the floor listening to the Interior Secretary yeah. say that she has no idea that all the electric vehicle stuff comes from China. How could you not know that? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. You know, to parse things carefully, the Biden administration acknowledges some things, which I find stunning in its own right, like the fact that we have no real we, – we amputated – the government amputated – uh, a large part of the semiconductor industry and outsourced it. And of course, that's why Taiwan is especially important to us. But on the other hand, they seem completely oblivious to the fact that rare earths, um, many of which are critical for things like lithium batteries and frankly, all, multiple internal components of not just electric cars, but a lot of other uh, you know appliances that we use regularly, that we are heavily uh, uh, dependent on China. You know, the problem that happened, and, and we all know this, but it's worth saying again, is that starting with Richard Nixon forward, we gradually succumbed to the idea that the sort of maybe hopeful initially, but ultimately completely misplaced notion that if you if you if you invite China to the table and you 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 imagine that they're going to take advantage of the economic freedom and access and we're going to let, let them break some rules and let them cheat a little bit and let them let them have currency manipulation and let them you know intimidate regional neighbors then somehow economic engagement and liberty and dependence and interdependence will trigger political freedom and liberty and the problem is that is absolutely not true what we have done is we have backhandedly upfunded the prime adversary for the next 50 years of the United States. We have upfunded in the Biden administration and the Obama administration, uh, unlike the, the Trump administration and really unlike the, the Reagan administration, have really come to the view that somehow we're just inevitably stuck in this mutual uh, you know, death spiral. That's not true just as it was not true with the Soviet Union, although the Soviet Union uh, was less engaged with us. The reality is that convergence is not an answer. Evil must be addressed directly. And what we're, what we're witnessing is a combination, I think, of ignorance on the part and naivete on the part, if not direct engagement for purpose on the part of the Biden administration. And on the other hand, we're seeing uh, the rise of a communist state that is intent on displacing us as the world's leader. And I would say it's even worse than that liberalization through globalization failed. I mean, that's bad enough. But the opposite is happening. As we've engaged with China in a variety of ways, we're becoming more like them. We're embracing speech codes, totalitarian politics, right. all kinds absolutely of things right. right out of the Chinese playbook. You are absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, if you look back and people forget history, but if you look back at Bolshevism and how it began, and the ways in which it suppressed the population, it suppressed religious worship, it, it suppressed speech, etc. And then you see that Mao's, Mao's China, literally, Mao went and studied what Stalin had done and adopted it into the Chinese uh, culture, basically, you know, killed millions, suppressed them with the Great Leap Forward, which was really the great, you know, death squad leap forward. And the reality of all this was that uh, Mao 
Mao basically cudgeled an entire population into submission and changed what would have been a nationalist free China uh, and previously had been. And who is Xi's hero? Xi's hero, President Xi's hero, current President Xi of China's hero is Mao. And so it's no wonder that, you know, and, and, and Biden has and his family have found themselves completely wrapped up uh, in the Chinese world. I mean, I think China, he, Biden went over there and said that the suppression of human rights is just a cultural difference. Yeah, not really. OK, not really. It, it's called communism and it's not a cultural difference. It's evil, as Ronald Reagan really said. So the bottom line on all this is that China's communist government is illegitimate. And the sooner we say that the oppression of humanity, whether you're killing babies by the tens of millions because of forced birth policies or you're suppressing speech and throwing people in prison, or as of last week, you have American executives who are being held because they can't get an exit visa to leave the country. All of that is the work of communism. And we don't want it here. We never have wanted it here. And it can't, it can't exist, coexist with our Constitution. I think the uh, Biden administration in many ways is underestimating just how much of a hold China has over us before we even get into what kind of a hold they have over the Biden family personally. But this mad dash to electric vehicles, which is entirely involuntary, no American consumer wants an electric vehicle. This is something we're being forced to embrace. It's a forced transition of our economy. Right. And not only does China control all the batteries and rare earths and so on, but even if they didn't, even if we developed resources to compete with them, we could not deliver those things for the price that China does because they use slave labor, because they don't have our environmental concerns. You can't compete with them in, in the costs necessary to make this industry work to the extent it does. And it really doesn't because electric cars are fantastically expensive anyway. Well, I think that it's important to have key data points in this. I don't disagree with anything you just said. You know, and I worked AMAC, uh, of which I'm the national spokesman, works day and night to keep this country solvent and free. And frankly, although they support older Americans, they also are really supporting the values of older America, where people understand that things come by sacrifice. A couple of data points critical. Um, electricity, you know, this whole notion, it's a tautology. It's a Rube Goldberg machine. It's the idea that you're going to make something of nothing like, uh, you know, the little uh, Rumpelstiltskin Stiltskin guy. The, the reality is here that the electric power that powers an electric vehicle comes from the power grid. The power grid itself is 75% fossil fuel driven, about 10% nukes, and a teeny bit wind and sun. We're never going to power all these electric cars, even if we could put imaginary useless electric stations in every rural pocket of America. We're never going to power it with anything but fossil fuel. So it's it's a great it's a great big uh, in in a sense it's a great big sleight of hand, right? Because all of this quote-unquote clean electricity, which makes us dependent on China and makes you drive a car that runs out of electricity in the middle of nowhere, and you're driving into 40 miles an hour wondering why you can't get any acceleration, all of that comes to a screeching halt um, if, if you have to cut off fossil fuels, which is what they want to do. All of this electricity is generated by fossil fuels. The other thing is China is taking us for a fool. They, they have a massive growing car consumption industry, 98% on the numbers of which is fossil fuel consuming uh, vehicles. Only 2% is electric vehicles. So at the end of the day, China is, is getting their cake and eating it too. And we, uh, you know, Biden used the phrase, they're not going to eat our lunch. They're not just eating our lunch. They're eating our next 50 years of lunch, breakfast, and dinner. 
So, you know, end of the day, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a foolish consistency, or as um, Emerson said, I think uh, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. And I think we got a lot of small minds trying to make our decisions for us. The uh, semiconductor issue is also very troubling because, as you pointed out, Taiwan is the semiconductor giant where everybody really gets them from. It may be that one reason China hasn't pulled the trigger on invading Taiwan is because they fear damaging semiconductor factories they need in order for China's high-tech industry to continue as it is right now. But if they were to invade or blockade Taiwan, then they could easily cut off our supply of those chips, and it would be devastating for us. Congress is making some moves to resuscitate our domestic industry, but it's going to take years to get there if we even can. That's exactly that's exactly right, John. And actually, you know, I, you you are talking in this moment, and we are talking in this moment about semiconductors and about rare earths, which China has a stranglehold uh, on. But the reality is, it goes even further than that. They they have a stranglehold on our pharmaceutical access and a bunch of other things, and those are all very worrisome. Yeah, none of that really sounds like we're moving towards any kind of independence at all. In a bizarre way, more than I think ever before in our history, we've become entirely dependent on our primary strategic competitor for so much of what we need. And Chinese government has demonstrated a willingness to use that leverage. This is not theoretical. They've done it. Bobby Charles, spokesperson for AMAC and commentator on Fox TV. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. In December, LastPass, a popular app for managing passwords, suffered a security breach, potentially exposing millions of people's personal information. When a business created to protect passwords gets hacked, it's a reminder how vulnerable our sensitive information can be when stored in the cloud. And for businesses who need to protect data, security is a top concern. To help prevent security risks, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud recently introduced a password manager. Jump Clouds Antoine Jabara. Businesses cannot always rely on an offline solution as users need to share and access passwords across multiple devices, and cloud based options aren't ideal either. Jump Cloud Password Manager takes a hybrid approach, storing data on users' devices and seamlessly syncs user vaults to multiple devices in an end to end encrypted way. This addresses some of the limitations of cloud based systems and bridges the gap between convenience and security. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? 
Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner. Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends but just to get something to eat. Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. Our vets need you. I'm a quadriplegic. I'm definitely at risk with my diminished lung capacity. I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't leave the house because I have a compromised immune system. I'm very concerned about would there be a bed for me, would there be a ventilator for me, would I be able to survive something. It's, it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's a heavy... It's a heavy moment. This is a war. This really is. Our veterans fought for us. Let's fight for them. I am so grateful for the PVA. They're making sure that we have all of the food and supplies that we need right now. We all got to help each other right now. We can't get through this by ourselves. It's with profound gratitude that you're going to be saving our lives. To find out how you can help, please go to helppva.org. That's H-E-L-P-P-V-A dot org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. I was talking with Bobby Charles about the forced transition to electric vehicles that the uh, government is forcing us to make, and that is just one of many ways in which climate change activism has permeated the entire titanic federal government and become, in a very real sense, its official state religion. Almost everything the government does now has some tint of climate change activism to it, and it is using its immense power to force private institutions to toe that political line as well. Here with us to talk about it is Dr. David Barker, former economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and partner in the Barker Companies. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a a troubling thing that is all too accepted nowadays, that we have political ideologies like the climate change ideology, and you have the federal government regulatory agencies and and agencies that grant money forcing private industries like the Fed forcing banks to get involved in climate activism, which should have nothing to do with either the Federal Reserve or banks. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, the Federal Reserve has plenty of other things to worry about, as we can see in the financial pages every day, but they've got a lot of economists devoted to climate change. And we're uh, we're up to four big bank collapses in the Biden administration so far, if I'm counting correctly. And one of them was pretty closely attributed to that bank, the Silicon Valley Bank's involvement in left wing causes, climate activism, and how it just kept investing, you know, as the activists told it to do instead of as fiscal common sense would tell it to do. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And another one was one of the first to stop investing in uh, stop making loans on fossil fuel projects. Uh, so it is related. And the Federal Reserve, I mean, there have been other uh, studies of the Federal Reserve showing a growing political bias there, but they've really gone in on climate change and have uh, pushed their economists to uh, to do work on it. They've had conferences on climate change and uh, uh, and have published research. And what I found interesting was uh, not just that they are focusing on climate research, but that the quality of their research is so poor. So what I did was to, you know, try and replicate their research very painstakingly, you know, finding the data, coding it all, uh, exactly replicating their results and finding the flaws in it. And it wasn't hard to find. I mean, poor statistical assumptions, poor use of data, really, you know, very low quality research. This is one of the things about the climate movement that has been driving its critics nuts all through its evolution from the new ice age to global warming to climate change and on and on, is that so much of the research is incredibly dishonest or shoddy. But if it backs up the climate agenda, it's immediately presented as unchallengeable holy writ, and nobody in the media notices when it gets picked apart, when yesterday's bombshell study is conclusively disproven a year later, and they've already moved on. They don't, they don't even care anymore. And I would think think that if I'm looking for information on a complex scientific topic like the climate, the last people I would ask to investigate that would be Federal Reserve economists. That's not their thing. That's not what they went to school for. Right. And you're absolutely right that when these studies come out, they get a lot of media attention. Uh, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and everyone else will uh, will write it up. But when it is disproven, uh, there's not a peep. Uh, this, the research that I was looking at were the economic effects of global uh, of climate change. So the Federal Reserve, they did these studies to show that if there is warming, it will negatively affect GDP. And there's just no support for that in the data. Right. And they've blamed everything on, on climate change over the years. Uh, GDP fluctuations, unemployment, strife in foreign countries, wars, rebellions. They're blaming everything on climate change now, which is pretty close to the definition of an unprovable assertion. Yes. Well, the part about strife in other countries is something that's my current work. I am uh, uh, working on a paper that I hope to publish this fall uh, on, uh, on, on the work that's been done to show that climate change affects political uh, stability. And the climate change is such a big topic, too. And this is why I get nervous when I see hundreds of Federal Reserve economists cranking out climate change papers, because even that term is not easy to define. Is it, are we talking about natural variations in the climate? Of course, the climate's always changing. If it stopped changing, that would be pretty weird. I'd start looking for aliens if the climate stopped changing. But are we talking about human-caused climate change and whether it's harmful or not and what we're doing that's supposedly causing it? And that's where this all starts falling apart. They have yet to prove any real linkage between what they claim is causing the climate to change in a bad way and the actual real-world observable results. And I don't think the Federal Reserve's economists are going to be the ones that do it. 
Right. And what they tried to do was to show that small changes in temperature over time uh, had an effect on GDP growth. So they looked at every country in the world going back several decades and every and another study, every state in the U.S., uh, trying to show that when one state was a little bit warmer, its GDP growth was less. But we know that that's ridiculous because Florida their GDP has grown faster than Michigan's, even though Florida's temperature is a lot higher. And they used a lot of very sophisticated statistical techniques to show that this was true. But when you examine the assumptions, when you carefully examine the assumptions, uh, the results fall apart. And that's like, uh, for example, I live in Florida, and they blame extreme weather events on climate change. And they say, well, you, your air conditioner probably caused that devastating hurricane that rolled through last year, which is not an easy thing to say to people who live through something like that. But where's the evidence? Where's the, the proof that anything human beings have done have influenced that? There isn't. It's all an emotional response. And meanwhile, if there's one thing I would like the Federal Reserve to do when it comes to climate, it would be assessing the cost of doing everything the climate movement wants us to do, because it would be astronomical and nobody's telling us what the price tag for the end game is going to be. Yes, that's exactly right. And the important thing, uh, the, the most important thing in economics is economic growth. I mean, it's growth uh, in per capita GDP that has led to the growth in the standards of living for people over the last couple of centuries. And the Effect. So that's why these Fed studies were trying to show that climate would affect economic growth, and it doesn't. What will affect economic growth are mandates from the federal government trying to change our energy use and our energy sources. And that can have an enormous effect on standards of living you know, decades into the future. And an economist would, by his trade, look at those changes, at those improvements and the costs and would be saying, maybe we could make this percentage improvement, but it would have such a soaring cost that it would be counterproductive to do that. And that's the kind of analysis we never hear. Nobody's telling us we're going to have to pay X billions of dollars to get Y benefit. And that benefit is pretty minor and is not even good enough to make a difference, according to the climate change activists. Absolutely right. We should be looking at cost-benefit analysis uh, that balances those things, not just focusing on one side. And there's nothing the government is more allergic to than cost-benefit analysis. Dr. David Barker, former economist at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today, sitting in for Alan. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.